0: This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Donna Brunero, senior lecturer in the Department of History at the National University of Singapore. Most recently, Dr. Brunero is the co editor of Life in Treaty Port, China and Japan, co edited with Stephanie Vialta Puig, and published by Palgrave in 2018. Dr. Brunero, thank you so much for talking with me today.
1: Oh, thank you, Tristan. It's a pleasure.
0: You recently co-edited this volume, Life in Treaty Port China in Japan, looking at, well, Life in Treaty Port China in Japan. I've had other episodes talking about some of these treaty ports in Japan, like Yokohama and Hyogo, but we haven't had anyone talking about them in this larger East Asian regional perspective. So could you give us that broader perspective?
1: Oh, okay. Yes, I mean one of the reasons why uh, we co-edited the volume, and you know, with that, with that sort of title, "Life in Treaty Port China and Japan," was because what we found, and I do tend to think scholars quite often think about the treaty ports in the context of the China coast or so the Chinese treaty ports or the Japanese treaty ports, but it's not that often that they actually put them together. Scholars, for some reason, seem to specialize in either the Chinese context or the Japanese context. And we thought that what we were doing was something quite different to bring both together and hopefully to bring them into dialogue with each other. I think because the treaty port system was actually part of a much larger larger system. So maybe I will share a little bit about the treaty port system, because this is something which is considered quite an unusual or unique system in the sense that you had Ports that were forcibly opened by a series of what are called the Unequal Treaties. In the case of China, it originated out of the Qing defeats in the Opium Wars. You have the Treaty of Nanjing, which forced the Chinese to open a number of ports to what was at first British trade and residence and later on other foreign powers also quickly followed suit. The Japanese case, it occurs a little bit later you have Commodore Perry and the example of him arriving with the, the great black ships and the Japanese Tokugawa realizing they'd already seen what had happened in China, that they really didn't want to go down the same track in terms of a forced opening of ports for trade. And this is where they also agreed to a limited access, a number of ports or areas that would be open to foreign residents and trade. So what what this leads to in an East Asian context is what we call the treaty port system, one where you have foreigners being able to reside, to operate businesses and to live within what were foreign enclaves, both on the China coast and also in a series of ports in Japan. And what you have is quite a long-term residence for many of these communities. It's it's not just the British, but you have many other foreign communities involved. Although the British tend to be preeminent, they do tend to be dominant. And these communities, they really take on their own characteristics and become almost like a settler community. And what you have is foreigners who establish, they have banks, they have foreign residential enclaves, they have their own newspapers. And of course, they have to have a race course. This is something that becomes essential. So horse riding, race courses, leisure becomes very important. And what you have is a creation of these enclaves that have foreign architecture. They are really tailored to a foreign presence within both China and Japan. In the case of China, you have just a few ports opening. The most famous or the one that will initially come to mind would be that of Shanghai. But there are others such as Ningbo. Uh, xiamen or Amoy, But what you end up with is a series of ports that are opened all along the China coast and stretching inland. In the case of Japan, it's never as extensive in terms of the treaty ports. Yokohama would be the most famous uh, example. But the concept was very much the same. Foreigners could live, they could very much operate in a way that they felt protected from local laws, from local regulations and that they could maintain this as very much their own foreign community. And this is what's really fascinated me in terms of looking at the treaty ports, because I think they are quite distinct. They were basically predicated on the fact that foreigners saw themselves as stronger, as in a superior position in the fact that they could use gunboat diplomacy. Whenever there's a problem, foreign gunboats would quite often arrive on either the China coast or the Japanese waters. And this was one of the ways that the treaty ports operated and flourished.
0: And in the Japanese context, we think of these places like Yokohama, Hyogo, because of the presence of Western traders and, and Western diplomats, they're often seen as these kind of hotbeds of westernization or you know, these areas where you get this mm. this new hybridized culture that emerges where it is where these Western things are introduced for the first time, gas lamps, Western food, all of these things. And so there is a major cultural impact on the home societies.
1: Oh, I think I think definitely. This is why quite often the treaty ports are held up as these sites of modernity. This idea that within these ports, what you have is the mixing of East and West. Quite often they're seen as the gateways to East Asia. But this is something that's often debated, and some scholars, for example, Rhodes Murphy would be a great example, an early sort of classic work, where he said, no, they're forever the outsiders. The transformation is never as profound as perhaps we may like to believe. But I think in terms of material culture, you do see transformations of the everyday daily practices, of the types of commodities and even the ideas that are circulating. You do see that happening within the treaty ports. It may not be transformative right across, say, all of China or right across all of Japan, but definitely within the treaty ports and even, I would say, the areas surrounding the treaty ports, you do see influences. And these flow from the treaty ports quite often along the road networks or the riverine networks, or even the rail networks, which are established. And this is where you can begin to think about the material culture aspect as well, that lives were transformed in some ways through uh, bringing in goods and, and items. I think it's Frank de work, he looks at the, the exotic and the way that something like enamelware becomes considered exotic in the Chinese context. And it's used by Chinese on a fairly regular basis rather than the porcelain. So there's a great irony that foreigners have so desperately wanted Chinese ceramics. And it's the enamelware that the Chinese see as something special and novel and somehow signifying something modern, that you use this because it's modern. The other thing is the use of pockets in clothing. The idea that you have pockets because you, you carry things and what you carry says a lot about you. These are some of the ideas where you think about material culture and the way that treaty ports are somehow seen as sites where some of these transformations take place. Also, just in the most practical sense, if you think of treaty ports, the nature of a port city is that this is a site where you have the exchange of goods. You know, a port has this very economic function. These goods and the sailors and the ships that are coming in also form part of the basis for and of this transformation that's taking place, because shipping itself changes, shipping companies change, and the types of goods they bring in change. So this is why as treaty ports, or as port cities, they are very open to external influence, and vice versa, they also influence visitors to these ports that then travel to other places. So you have the movement of goods around East Asia, but you also see it throughout Southeast Asia and beyond.
0: And that's a great point about ports as places where you have the movement of goods, and also people. I think yes. often, because in, in the conventional memory, the ports are so associated with, say, Western modernity and the introduction of the Western culture, they're often imagined as places where it's only Westerners. But in fact, there's a lot of Japanese traders who are coming to places like Yokohama to set up new shops. And then there's also Chinese traders there as well. So can you talk about the presence of Japanese and Chinese in the trading ports?
1: Oh, yes, definitely. I think... This is perhaps one of the biggest misconceptions or when you think about treaty ports and you think about treaty port worlds, it's perhaps easiest to think about the foreigners and that whole idea of the East and West. But the reality is that the number of foreigners is always proportionally very small. In terms of foreigners as Westerners, if we think about Europeans, you've got the British, you have other Europeans, you have the Americans as well. But what you have is a very large, so in the Chinese context and Chinese treaty ports, you have a very large Japanese community that move across to Chinese treaty ports. Even within places like Shanghai, they have their own residential enclaves, they have established their own clubs, their own associations. And what you have in the case of the Japanese treaty ports is something very similar, that one of the largest communities represented is actually that of the Chinese. The difficulty is that quite often they're not captured in a lot of the official records, particularly if you're looking at Western language records, where they're trying to record foreigners within the treaty port context. They tend to be blind to or to ignore the fact that you have a large number of either Chinese or Japanese operating within these different treaty ports. But they're quite fundamental actually in terms of how these ports operate. So it's not so surprising, but perhaps when you when you look at the literature and the stereotype is much more that East and West exchange that we sort of forget about the more fundamental exchanges that are taking place. And the exchanges have been taking place for a very long time, actually, if we're looking at Sino-Japanese exchanges relating to ceramics, for instance, and the sort of influences back and forth with trade. But in the treaty ports, I think something quite different happens because you really do have that moving for business, uh, helping to facilitate business, and real communities and enclaves being established.
0: you are talking about these lives that the foreigners living in the treaty ports were able to establish. You know, They kind of create their lives in this place. They have their racetrack, they have their yacht club, and they also have their newspapers. And so in the case of Japan, we have like the Japan Gazette and all these things. And so there's a number of cases of foreign press, and I imagine the same is true in China as well. And so you were presenting recently on depictions of the Meiji Restoration in Chinese treaty port press. And so I was curious, what is this depiction that we get about? the Meiji Restoration from the Chinese Treaty Ports.
1: Ah, yes. You see, I I do have this sort of long-held interest with the Treaty Ports, and yes, they do have a lot of Western language press that is operating particularly along the China coast. And what, what really interested me for thinking about the Meiji Restoration was this idea of looking at what the China coast press was reporting at the time. Because what you have is a press that is very much the voice of the community for thinking about the foreign community, predominantly Western community on the China coast. And they they do take a very distinct interest in events in East Asia, partly because they see that as shaping their own future, their own business prospects and perhaps new opportunities. And the paper that I'm most familiar with and I like to use most often because it has a very long lifespan, is that of the North China Herald. And it goes through uh, several different iterations, but early on it's called the North China Herald and Supreme Court Consular Gazette. Later on, there'll be a daily version of the paper, then the North China Herald becomes a weekly version. But early on, you've got this sort of larger sort of Herald and Supreme Court Consular Gazette. And what it's doing is basically reporting on everything that is happening, both in, in China or along the China coast, so different treaty ports it will report on. And then it has a section where it looks at Japan. And that's what I started to look at and to try and see, were they interested? What, what was this press? And and I think there is a case for seeing that this press does represent a Western settler perspective of what's happening in East Asia. And I tried to look at to what extent does this press then start to take an interest in what's unfolding in Japan. And it they do. And I, I tried to look at a few different ways in which the paper tried to examine what was happening with the Meiji Restoration. And one of the big concerns that they have was this idea of stability. And I thought That's not so surprising, perhaps, because what you have is a community based on the China coast, whose livelihoods and careers, their wealth is quite often tied up with an East Asian trading environment. They're really concerned that the Meiji restoration will cause changes, which perhaps they have reason to believe that, of course, it's it's going to cause changes. But what they begin to talk about is that the Meiji emperor could potentially bring stability and to usher a new era for Japan. However, what they have is a great misgiving or concern about this. So quite often in the paper, there is this sort of description where they say, well, the Meiji Emperor could potentially bring the stability to Japan because Japan has had this sort of inner turmoil. But really, and to use their description, they say, he's just a lad. He's not really capable of meaningful rule. So, so this, is, this is where they're sort of saying, okay, even though he, his uh, rule is restored, he doesn't really rule directly. There is this perception that his rule was not direct, that he was relying on this sort of capable uh, samurai class. And basically, they, they have a lot of misgivings. One thing that came up that I found most interesting was that for the China coast, they try and explain what they see happening and one of the ways they try and explain it is to talk about the concept of a regency and to relate that to British history. So again, I guess it's thinking about it in a way that for the China Coast press and for the China Coast communities, if you don't fully understand or you're uncertain about what's going on, you try and relate it to something within your own history that you see a parallel to. And this is where they start talking about British history, Cases of regencies which have been very unfavorable in British history. And just the whole way that they say, well, history has proven. So they'll, they'll tend to write about history has proven that regencies are unsuccessful in, in the British context. So we have reason to be concerned about what's happening in Japan for that exact reason. And they then turn to the divisions in England and they talk about the Meiji Restoration and what they'd seen historically as divisions in England relating to the War of the Roses. So they really try and look back at historical examples and say, okay, is this the same thing that we, that we are seeing? You know, Is there reason to be concerned? And as I mentioned, there there was this sense of ambivalence or concern that on the one hand, the Meiji emperor just seems too young to be an effective ruler. But on the other hand, they're saying, actually, there's been so much instability that perhaps even in this new symbolic role, there can be something favorable coming out of this. So the press seems to switch back and forth, even within the space of a month or two months. There's a lot of switching back and forth of views. So perhaps that's also a reflection of a China Coast press that is so close to events that it's very hard for them to gauge or to get a sense of what is really happening. They tend to rely on Japanese press as well. So they're also having reports from journalists who are based in Japan as one way of also getting perhaps more authentic news or news that they feel is uh, closer to the ground. One of the other things that the North China Herald and Supreme Court Consular Gazette tends to point out is to try and look at references again to the Scottish and English and they, they talk about dynamics at play in Japan as very much like the highlands versus the English. So again, they, they try and sort of relate it to what they understand in a British context for a readership on the China coast that is observing what's happening, but is concerned about Japan. And they describe Japan as being this long, agitated country. So the, this idea that it had been agitated and in turmoil for quite some time. This is why you have this sort of concern about where does the, this new Meiji emperor sit? Will he be capable as a ruler? Is he too young to rule in his own right? And if he does, what, what might actually happen? One of, one of the things that also came out, and there's, there's mention in October of 1868, and this is where the China Coast press really shows its true I wouldn't say it's true nature, but you begin to see it's true colors coming through and it becomes very typical of the China Coast Press, actually. They actually make this observation that if the new emperor is not up to the task and if Japan remains unstable, of course, it means that foreign business interests are at risk. Of course, they couch it in slightly different terms, but what they begin to suggest in the newspaper is that perhaps the foreign powers need to begin to think about stepping in and actually helping Japan and this is where writers from the china coast suggest that what should happen is that the british should actually step in to help japan and they phrase it in a way uh, in terms of saying we have done this uh, in the case of china so perhaps it's now time for british to take the british to take the lead and to actually step in and help japan and this this for me when i was reading through the press this very much typifies that china coast voice which is increasingly strident over the decades, actually, and quite often out of step with foreign policy, but really represents that settler view or settler perspective. So from this China coast perspective, the Meiji Restoration, they're observing it, they're concerned about it. But basically, they're saying, actually, there's nothing that can't be fixed without a Western gunboat, some British direction, and Japan will therefore be free from danger. And this for me really typifies the China Coast press. Sometimes it's jarring when you read it, but it really reflects something of the mindset of this treaty port settler communities and the way that their interests are so bound up in the Far East that they think that using gunboats and using the treaty port system is one way that they can ensure control, but also preserve their own interests. If you read the press at the time, the China Coast Press, the Meiji Restoration also allowed the press to begin to justify why they had so many gunboats on the China coast and why then it made sense to send some to Japan. Because again, and they relate this to legal systems So if we think about extraterritoriality, but in this case, the press starts to express these ideas that, oh, in Europe, we have recognition of the law of nations, the idea of respect for humanity. But in Asia, Asia only really recognizes the law of the strongest. So therefore, again, it justifies why gunboats are necessary in the East Asian context and to sustain the treaty port system, particularly when there is this instability with the Métis restoration
0: that brings up another point too about the regional perspective looking at the Chinese and Japanese treaty ports in the same context i mean you were talking about the names of these newspapers the gazette the herald it, it really reminded me of you know the, the japanese papers all have the same name and it's like well i guess it certainly makes sense because they're probably started by the same people and, and so in addition to the traders going around between these ports we also get people on the diplomatic side, and even the British ambassador to Japan at this time, Sir Harry Parks, I I believe started in China, right? And the American Charles Legendre goes from China to Japan. And so then there's a number of these diplomats going around. And so in addition to the treaty ports as places where traders are going between these two countries, there's also the diplomatic aspects as well.
1: Oh, yes, I think there's definitely, there's, there's a diplomatic aspect of diplomats moving from a posting in China to a posting in Japan and they bring with them a lot of the ideas and experiences they've had in China. You've also got journalists that tend to move around the region and then you have the more informal, I'd like to call them adventurers, but I I think they see themselves as journalists uh, first and foremost, but you do have writers that will. also move between different presses. They'll also publish independently. And they tend to publish not just on China or not just on Japan, but usually with this larger view of the East Asian question. And they will will quite often want to write on what is very topical because there is a, a demand for the, and there is an interest at home for material looking at the political scene in East Asia, looking at an understanding East Asia beyond the treaty ports. So you do have that sort of crossing over. What you've also got on the business side is quite a few businesses will operate on the China coast and they will have a branch or they will have representatives in Japan. So you have within the one business, you have the communication moving back and forth as well. So this is where there is this really heightened interest with the Meiji Restoration in terms of what's happening and any hint of continuing instability is where you then have these calls for oh let's let's send a gunboat let's sort this out the british have already done such they don't say we've done such a great job in china but they make this case of saying we've already sorted out china so now it's time to perhaps look to japan and this is very much that sort of china coast voice or settler voice where they push beyond anything that even the british government the british foreign office would be interested in doing they, they tend to always be pushing that step further because they have the most to gain from greater control, I think, within the East Asian context. One of the other ideas or one of the other topics that really comes out in the newspapers at around the time of the Meiji Restoration is this ongoing interest for new businesses or industries in Japan. So during the early years of the Meiji Restoration, what you tend to see on the China coast is reports on business conditions in relation to Japan. In particular, there are reports on coal, its accessibility and the quality of coal deposits in Japan. There's attention to port facilities. So this goes back to the port city. There's also ideas relating to any potential concessions for foreign traders, and in the 18, 1868 in Edo, there's a hotel opened. And again, this is, this is given a fair bit of press coverage because it's seen as quite a valuable sort of concession and the idea that foreigners will be able to go and stay there. It will accommodate around 40 guests. And the same report actually goes on to talk about it's not just a hotel in Edo, but there are going to be warehouses erected as well. So there is this idea of a concern about the type of infrastructure that is being built, particularly in this early Meiji period. And throughout the newspaper, what you've also got is adverts running, and these are quite often Japanese-based foreign companies, such as Glover & Co. or the Nagasaki Patent Slip, which is for docking ships. So this is, again, where there's a great interest mentioned. And the first direct steamer actually starts running from England to Yokohama in 1869, and this was seen as really noteworthy. In addition, what was even more exciting to the China coast press was the fact that the Japanese government was buying steamers. So one, they stood to make money out of this, but also the idea that the Japanese government was actually being very forward-thinking. And this is where this comparison is made once again between the Japanese context and that of the Chinese And the China Coast papers tend to lament that, in their view, the Chinese were unwilling to adopt technologies, whereas the Japanese government was actually at the forefront of buying steamships and steam technology. So in this way, there is a recognition that Japan has a different potential, whereas Qing rule is seen as very backward looking. And so the Meiji period is used as a way of sort of contrasting what is seen as transformation in Japan as opposed to stagnation in Qing China. And this comes through in the press reports. One really interesting episode that occurs is when Meiji Japan appears on a world stage. How does it happen? I would say it's via the visit of His Royal Highness Prince Alfred, the Duke of Edinburgh, on the HMS Galatea in September 1869. The Galatea arrived in Yokohama on the 31st of August. Now, this is... Basically tied in with the the notion of the British royalty visiting different ports of empire, but they also come through East Asia. Now this was detailed by foreign observers at the time. The China Coast Press is very excited about it, and particularly the way in which the Duke was treated by the Meiji Emperor and his court. There was reportedly a lot of excitement in Japan about this visit. And the China Coast press is really excited and they they basically praise the Meiji Emperor for treating His Royal Highness in such a distinguished manner. So the Duke not only visited Yokohama, he traveled to Edo, he was given a special audience with the Emperor at dinner receptions, and he met members of the business community as well. And this is where the China Coast Press see this as particularly admirable because they say here what we have for the first time is a foreign prince being received and honored by a representative of Japan and the emperor himself, the emperor no less. So it's seen as most gratifying that there was this hospitable spirit that the Japanese government had gone to such great lengths, they'd even built a bungalow, that had gardens sculptured, and even specially ordered furniture from Hong Kong so the royal visitor would be comfortable. Now, this has given a lot of attention in the China Coast Press because it was seen as cementing British relations with the Meiji government. And what they were most concerned about with was not the fact that His Royal Highness was touring the Far East, but that rank and status and British power was being recognized through this royal visitor. And this is quite important because within the same span of time, there had been a lot of debate from the China side as to whether His Royal Highness would be greeted in a manner that was befitting a royal prince from the Chinese authorities or by the Chinese authorities. And there was this real concern that, in fact, the Qing may not give due respect to the prince. So what they saw in the case of Japan was this very welcoming environment and a great deal of effort in having the emperor willing to permit a British prince to have an audience. Whereas in the case of the Qing, there was a lot of discussion back and forth as to whether the prince would be recognized as a member of royalty or he had to visit under such circumstances as he would not be accorded accorded this type of respect. And this is where, around the same period of time, the China Coast Press starts to really discuss in their editorials about the question of prestige and the way that the British should deal with what they term as Asiatic peoples. What I've been talking about or what I've been sharing with you, Tristan, is perhaps not so much a reflection of Meiji Japan or Japanese history as it is a reflection on the China Coast. And I think that this actually has value in terms of thinking about perspective because what you have is uh, settler communities that actually go on to have a very long tenure on the Chinese coast, and to, to leave something of quite a deep imprint in many ways, not just in terms of architecture, but the type of culture and ideas that they bring into China. By looking at the China coast press and their interest, concern, and growing admiration for the Japanese Meiji era, you, you have reflections on foreign attitudes towards East Asia, what foreigners see as being a priority in the East Asian context. And what this leads to over time would be the emergence of this whole group, which become known as the old China hands, which really goes to the 1930s and 1940s. These are the foreign advisors, quite often American, that begin to give advice on the East Asian question. What you're looking at in this period, if we're going right back to the 1860s, is, is sort of the, the forerunners to this, the settler communities, also business, political, you know, the diplomatic element, journalists, who all have an interest in East Asia. Many of them because their livelihoods were tied up in it. And the way that they looked at the Meiji Restoration in terms of, on the one hand, some skepticism as to whether the Meiji Restoration would bring lasting change. But at the same time, they begin to see this glimmer of optimism because what they see is a growing potential for business opportunities. And from the China coast perspective, greater business opportunities in East Asia and to be able to operate in an environment that was stable and receptive to foreigners was something that they were really wishing for and something in their view that would be a win-win.
0: The at One Hundred and Fifty podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Centre for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.